You're listening to Amazing Discoveries Audio. This is In the Stream of Time, Episode 7, with Walter Fite. Today we're going to talk about the climax of history. And the climax of history, of course, is the second coming and whatever happens thereafter. And as we saw in the previous lecture, there are so many confusing ideas as to what happens at the return of Christ. And we looked at the Roman Catholic view, which was amillennianism, that there is no period of millennium, but when the church rules, that is the period of the kingdom. And, uh, of course, that is also a view of some of the more... Uh, conservative um, Protestant churches, such as conservative Lutherans, etc. But the evangelical views are totally different. They have premillennialism, postmillennialism, dispensationalism, all of these ideologies mixed in with secret raptures and the kingdom of Israel getting a second opportunity to rule the world, Christ coming down, to the kingdom of Israel, but his bride being raptured away. And there are so many confusing ideas that we need to go back to basics and go back to the Bible and see what does the Bible have to say? Because the Bible knows none of any of those, those ideologies. They all come out of the Jesuit stable, all of them. Wesley's famous declaration I want to know one thing, the way to heaven. How to land safe on that happy shore. God himself has condescended to teach the way. For this very end he came from heaven. He has written it down in a book. Oh, give me that book at any price. Give me the book of God. I have it. Here is knowledge enough for me. Let me be homo unius libri, man of one if I want to know what's going to happen at the end of the age, if I want to know what the second coming and the millennium and all these things is going to be like, I can't go to Hollywood to find out and look at a Left Behind series. I have to find out from this book what will happen. So we're going to do a simple Bible study tonight. We're just going to look at one Bible verse after the other and let the Bible explain itself. Men of Galilee, why do you stand gazing up into heaven? This same Jesus, who is taken up from you into heaven, will come in the way you have seen him going into heaven. They saw him being taken up with the angelic host. They will see him come down with the angelic host. And it's not some ghostly Jesus, it is the one that said, give me something to eat here, put your hand in my side, touch the wounds, feel me, I'm a human being. The question is, why will he come again, and why defer everything to a time period of restoration? Titus 2 verse 13 says, looking for that blessed hope and the glorious appearing, of the great God and our Savior, Jesus Christ. Now the grammar there links the great God and Jesus Christ as one. So Jesus Christ is the great God and Savior that will be coming, and this is the blessed hope of the church. 
So everything should be focused towards the second coming. John chapter 14 has a beautiful story. And if there was nothing else in the Bible other than this small section of John chapter 14, then all the ideologies out there would be shattered. This is a Bible in itself. Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions, unless, of course, you have a modern translation, then you only get a room. But uh, in the old translation, you get a mansion. If it were not so, I would have told you, I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you unto myself, that where I am, there ye may be also. According to the verse, when will people go to heaven? According to the verse. Not according to theology, but according to the verse. When he comes again, and not before. And according to the verse, what is he doing at the moment? Preparing a place. And what is his character like? Is he coming as a stern taskmaster to his children? No, let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. It's, it's a beautiful message. So according to the verse, people will go to heaven when Jesus comes. How will he come again? We need to understand, because there are so many theories of secret raptures out there. What does the Bible say? Firstly, the Bible says his coming will be universally visible. So that gets rid of all secrecy. Behold, he comes with the clouds and every eye will see him. Now, if he comes with the clouds, we want to know what the clouds are. For as the lightning comes out of the east and shines even to the west, so also will be the coming of the Son of Man. So this is a highly visible appearance. And everybody will see him. There's nothing secret about it. So what does it mean when the Bible says he comes with the clouds? Who makes the clouds his chariot? Who walks upon the wings of the wind? Psalms 104 verse 3. So we have a parallel text, but it still doesn't tell us what it is. And they shall see the Son of Man coming in the clouds of heaven with power and great, great glory. Matthew 24 30. The chariots of God are 20,000, even thousands of angels. The Lord is among them as in Sinai in the holy place. So we know what the chariots are. He's coming with his angels. That's what the text says. When the Lord shall be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels. 2 Thessalonians 1.7 So this is a spectacular event. And then, even more interesting, when he comes in his own glory and the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. In other words, he's coming in the full glory of the Godhead. Now, this full glory of the Godhead always had to be veiled in human history. On Sinai, it had to be veiled so that the people would not be destroyed. It was veiled in a cloud. Even the reflected glory through the cloud was too much for the Israelites, and so Moses had to wear a veil to 
prevent them from not being able to bear his likeness. But God never showed his face, not even to Moses, except in the humanity of Jesus Christ. And there he veiled his glory in humanity. So when the Son of Man shall come in his glory and all the angels with him, then shall he sit on the throne of his glory. Matthew 25, 31. So there's nothing secret about this. This is spectacular. And the number of them was 10,000 times 10,000 and thousands of thousands. The Bible doesn't use the word millions. This is the highest number it used. And the multitudes of thousands tell us that it's billions of angels that will be coming with him. And I don't know where modern theology gets its ideology from. Not only will it be visible, the second coming, it will also be audible. The second coming will be audible. 1 Thessalonians 4.16 For the Lord himself shall descend from heaven with a shout and with a voice of the archangel and with the trumpet of God. So this is a spectacular event. And he shall send his angels with great sound of a trumpet and they shall gather his elect from the four winds and from the end of the heavens, from the one end to the other end. So the angels will be sent out and that's when the gathering will take place and God's people will be gathered. Now very, very important, he will not touch the earth. And the dead in Christ shall rise first, which means there must be at least two resurrections, right? The dead in Christ shall rise first, then we which are alive, the living, and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so shall we ever be with the Lord. In other words, the righteous living and the righteous dead are taken up to heaven at the same time. It's very clear. And you meet the Lord in the air. So there can be no confusion. So when the Lord warns in Matthew 24, verse 26 and 27, Therefore, if they shall say to you, Behold, he's in the desert. Do not go out. Behold, he's in the secret rooms. Do not believe it. For as the lightning comes out of the east and shines even to the west, so also will be the coming of the Son of Man. I was in Zurich, and I held a lecture series there. And I had a, quite a large audience in a large hall. It was a few thousand people. And I was giving a lecture on Matreya who is the representation of the Christ. And Benjamin Cream was his medium, and he overshadowed Benjamin Cream, and then he would give his messages. And it was spectacular because there were even uh, changes in form, and people were, well, exhilarated by this event. And Matreya was appearing in different locations at that time. At the moment, Matreya is very quiet because he's waiting for this final manifestation before he reveals himself, probably as the false Christ 
who will impersonate Jesus. But while I was there in Zurich and I gave this lecture, the Swiss were very skeptical. And some of them started haggling and heckling. And finally, some of them got up out of my lecture and said, excuse me, we don't believe in any Maitreya nonsense. This is all figments of the imagination. And they walked out of my audience, which was somewhat disconcerting. Nevertheless, we recovered from the blow and all these people left. And I continued with my lecture. And about 10 minutes later, or maybe a little more, maybe a little less, I don't know, they came ashen-faced running back into the hall. I thought, what's happened now? And I think God has a sense of humor, you know. Because unbeknown to us, in a hotel right opposite the hall where I was presenting my lecture on this Maitreya and the falsehoods surrounded by it, according to the scripture, there was Benjamin Cream being overshadowed by Maitreya. And just as my audience, or part of my audience, departed, these people came running out from his meeting and were shouting, Matreya is here! Matreya is here! And they were overwhelmed with excitement and handing out things and screaming in the streets. And my people got such a shock, they all ran back into the lecture and sat down and listened. So I'm very grateful to Benjamin Cream. When you hear he's in Zurich in some hotel, don't go! Because when he comes, he will be visible from the east to the west, like lightning is visible. So what will take place at the second coming? Well, the resurrection of the righteous, for the Lord himself shall descend from heaven with a shout, and with the voice of the archangel, and with the trump of God, and the dead in Christ shall rise first. So those in Christ, or raised from the dead. The rest of the dead, that's those that are not in Christ, lived not again until the thousand years were finished. But you will notice that we are quoting from different portions of the Bible. The Bible tells us itself that we must look and study here a little, there a little, and we must put the picture together. And some people may say, excuse me, but you're now quoting from Revelation. But it deals with the same issue. It deals with the resurrection and it tells you that the rest of the dead live not again. So obviously those must be the ones that are not in the first resurrection. It's perfectly logical. There's no other conclusion you can come to until the thousand years were finished. And blessed or holy is he who has part in the first resurrection. So you don't want to be in the second resurrection. You want to be in the first resurrection. So we can call the first resurrection the resurrection of life. And we can call the second resurrection the resurrection of damnation. Now at the second coming, the righteous living will be translated because Paul said they go at the same time, in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trump. So not before. For the trumpet shall sound, and the dead shall be raised incorruptible, 
and we shall be changed. For this corruptible must put on incorruption, and this mortal must put on immortality. So you will come forth with a fresh body, no disease clinging to you, and a transformed, immortal, glorified body. For our conversation is in heaven, from whence also we look to the Saviour, the Lord Jesus Christ, who shall change our vile body, this one that keeps coughing, that it may be fashioned like unto his glorious body. Philippians 3, 20, 21. That, that's fascinating. This, this is something that tells you something about the character of God. If I were the creator and I was going to create little creatures to, to worship me, they would all be, I don't know, the size of cockroaches probably. And I would look out at them and say, Hello, do you know who I am? Not God. God makes his creation as near as possible to himself. What does that tell you about the character of God? That's phenomenal, isn't it? Can you now understand why Lucifer rebelled against the Son of God in heaven? Because he had been made also in the likeness of God, and he looked into the face of the Son of God, he also having had a glorious body, like unto his glorious body, and he said, you know, excuse me, you get into the council of God, and when you come into the the crowd, the angels bow down and worship you. What, what about me? Am I not just as glorified? Am I not the choir leader? Am I not the one who organizes everything here? And I'm not the head honcho? What's this nonsense? What makes you greater than me? And of course, I assume that Lucifer was created in the full glory just like Adam was created in full glory. He wasn't created as an infant. He was created in full glory. So he had no knowledge of a, of a before and after. I know that I came as an infant. Why? Because there are pictures of me which say I didn't look like I look now. So there's a history that I had a beginning. But he didn't have a history that he had a beginning. And he felt himself equal with God. And then he coveted the position of God. And that God would do this again. Change our vile bodies that it may be fashioned like unto his glorious body. Tells us that the character of God does not change. This is incredible. But now is Christ ridden from dead and become the first fruits of them that slept. For as in Adam all die, even so in Christ shall all be made alive. Christ the firstfruits, afterwards they that are Christ's at his coming, not before. Now hold on a second, here's a problem. Doesn't the Bible say there are some people in heaven? Then how can Christ be the firstfruits? Aren't there other people that went to heaven before? And the answer is yes. Enoch is in heaven. Elijah is in heaven, neither of them having seen death. And according to Jude, Moses is in heaven because Michael argued over the body of Moses with the devil and 
took him to heaven. And we know he's in heaven because he appeared with Elijah on the Mount of Transfiguration. So there are some people in heaven. Then how can Christ be the first fruits? Then there are other people that were dead and were resurrected but didn't go to heaven at that point, like Lazarus, for example. But there were others that were dead that were raised and actually did go to heaven. For example, when Jesus rose from the grave, the Bible says the captives came forth out of the grave and went and witnessed in Jerusalem of the resurrection. And then the Bible says when he ascended into heaven, he took captives in his train. So there are people in heaven, and we know some of them. We know that Moses is there. We know that Enoch is there from before the flood. We know that Elijah is there. And we know that there are people that were resurrected at the resurrection of Jesus who are in heaven. We don't know who they are, so there's no point speculating. The Bible doesn't say. Don't speculate about. Now, Jesus is nevertheless the first fruit because they were just the guarantee that Jesus would save them. They are like post-dated checks, making sure that the pre-flood world knew that if you were faithful, you would go to heaven like Enoch. Moses is the representative of those that die and will be resurrected, and Elijah is the representative of those that will be translated without seeing death at the end of time. Had Jesus failed, then all of those in heaven would have fallen like ripe fruits from heaven, and then the plan of salvation would have been lost. It's an incredible thought. The whole of heaven was endangered because the Son of God, having taken humanity, could have failed, but he did not. Had he failed, then even the angelic host would not have had access through the Son of God to the God of heaven. What a risk he took to save mankind. I have fought a good fight. I have finished my course. I have kept the faith, says Paul. Henceforth there is laid up for me a crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, shall give me at that day. And not to me only, but also to them also that love his appearing. So Paul had no idea that he was going to go to heaven. He didn't think that. He knew he was going to sleep until that day, the second coming of Christ, and together with all the righteous, he would be taken to heaven. So what happens to the wicked? And then shall appear the sign of the Son of Man in heaven, and then shall all the tribes of the earth mourn, and they shall see the Son of Man coming in the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. So the living that have rejected this great salvation offered to them free of choice, they start mourning. They're not very cheered by the coming of Christ. And the kings of the earth and the great men and the rich men and the chief captains and the mighty men and every bondsman and every free man hid themselves in the dens and the rocks of the mountains. So they run for their lives at the spectacle.
spectacular coming of Christ. And they say to the mountains and the rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him that sitteth on the throne, because they cannot look into that face without being consumed. And from the wrath of the Lamb, for the great day of his wrath is come, and who shall be able to stand? So there are these two classes. Now, these people that say that Jesus is going to come and secretly rapture his people away are in big, deep trouble here because the Bible doesn't say anything of that nature. He comes spectacularly. There's no secrecy. He resurrects the righteous. The angels go out and gather them and the others run for their lives, but they will not survive. As he comes, they will be destroyed. Behold, the Lord came with 10,000 of his holy ones to execute judgment upon all and to convict all the ungodly of all their works of ungodliness which they have ungodly wrought and all the hard things which ungodly sinners have spoken against him. I wonder what some of these Hollywood people will say when the Lord comes and how they blasphemed him in some of the things that they did. Jude 14 and 15. Zephaniah tells us that the great day of the Lord is near, it is near and hasteneth greatly, even the voice of the day of the Lord, and the mighty men shall cry there bitterly. That day is a day of wrath, a day of trouble, distress, wasteness, desolation, darkness, gloominess, clouds, thick darkness. So there are two sides to the story. And Thessalonians tells us, and then the lawless one will be revealed. That's the one who assumes the authority of God here on this planet, whom the Lord shall consume with the breath of his mouth and shall destroy with the brightness of his coming. That's pretty clear. So this is nothing to look forward to, to the nations, let alone, as dispensationalism teaches, that the nations that didn't accept Christ will receive another chance and stay behind and the righteous will be taken away. Now, if they were to receive another chance, then the last generation receives two chances and all the previous generations receive only one chance. If I were from the previous generation, I'd say, excuse me, I thought you had one measure to measure judgment but you seem to have two. I get one chance, they get no chance. And someone will say, excuse me, you say I was under the law and I transgressed and I'm dead meat, but these people transgressed and they are under grace, so they are saved. Don't you have two measures? Jesus Christ the same yesterday, today and forever. So Jeremiah says the slain of the Lord shall be at that day from one end of the earth even to the other end of the earth. There shall not be mourned, nor gathered, nor buried. They shall be as dung on the ground. That's pretty clear. So why aren't they mourned? There's no one to mourn them. Why aren't they buried? There's no one to bury them. The righteous have been taken away and the rest are all dead. That is scripture. Zephaniah tells us how utterly this will be. I will utterly consume all things from the land. I will consume man and beast. I will consume the fowls of the heaven and the fish of the sea, 
stumbling blocks with the wicked, and I will cut off man from off the land, says the Lord. He'll be gone. And the whole animal kingdom will disappear. Because it is groaning in travail and suffering, and something must be done. So this whole rebellious planet will be laid in ruins. The Lord is at your right hand, says Psalms 110. He will shatter kings on the day of his wrath. He will execute judgment amongst the nations, filling them with corpses. He will shatter chiefs over the wide earth. That's a pretty clear text. There's no way you can ignore them and not have them in the picture, or else you have dichotomies or even more variables in the Bible. The Bible has to be a harmonious whole. Jeremiah describes the earth after the Lord has destroyed it. I beheld the earth, and indeed it was without form and void. So it goes back to the abusos stage, as it was before creation. And they had no light, the heavens. And I beheld the mountains, and they trembled, and the hills moved back and forth. I beheld, and indeed there was no man. All the birds of heaven had fled. There were no birds. In, I beheld, and indeed the fruitful land was a wilderness, and all its cities were broken down at the presence of the Lord by his fierce anger. For thus says the Lord, the whole land will be desolate. Yet I will not make a full end. Even though he destroys the planet, the life on this earth, all the cities, it's not the end of the story, there's more coming. For this shall the earth mourn and the heavens above be black because I have spoken, I have purposed and will not relent nor will I turn back from it. It's going to happen. That's what the scripture says. This planet will be destroyed. So at the coming of the Lord, the cities will be desolate and the wicked are all slain. Not one remains. Not one. So there's no secret rapture. The just and the wicked are revealed at the same time. Thessalonians tells us God is just. He will pay back trouble to those who trouble you and give relief to you who are troubled and to us as well. This will happen when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven in blazing fire with his powerful angels. So there's no time gap between the groups. It happens at the same time. Well, there goes the secret rapture. And I saw an angel come down from heaven having the keys to the bottomless pit and a great chain in his hand, and he laid hold on the dragon, that old serpent, which is the devil and Satan, and bound him a thousand years. Now, is this a literal chain, or is this another chain? Well, obviously, Satan is now bound by chains of circumstances, and if we want to look at a text that might give us a clue, Psalm 68, verse 6 says, God setteth the solitary in families, he bringeth out those which are bound with chains. But the rebellious dwell in a dry land. So obviously he's not talking about literal chains. Satan is bound by the chains of circumstance. He has nothing to do. He cannot deceive anyone because they're all dead. Can you imagine the bickering amongst those evil angels during those thousand years? It's your fault. No, it's your fault. It's going to be one time of reflection. 1,000 years of reflection. So millennium, millianos, means 1,000 years. 
So, is there a millennium in the Bible, yes or no? Yes. So how can Catholicism teach amillennianism? It doesn't make sense. And premillennianism and postmillennialism and rapture and all of these issues, they don't occur in the Bible. It doesn't exist. Now the Bible calls this great destruction of the wicked the battle of Armageddon. And there are two sets of battles, as we will see. Then they gathered the kings together to the place that in Hebrew is called Armageddon. Revelation 16.6. Now this little word, place, is a fascinating little word. And of course, the theologians who believe that the Armageddon deals with literal Israel and that the armies will come out of the east, the Russians or the Chinese, or ever they conjure up in order to do this, they will attack Israel, and the armies of the world will fight in this valley uh, of Megiddo. But this is not what the scriptures are talking about at all. Joel actually calls it the valley of Jehoshaphat. While Zechariah states the nations will be gathered to Jerusalem, so which, which is it now? They're all parallel texts, and they're three different locations. And that cannot be unless there is a spiritual connotation to this. I will gather all nations and bring them down to the valley of Jehoshaphat, Joel 3.2, or Zechariah says, I will gather them to Jerusalem. So which of the three is it now? Well, the place is not a physical place. Because this little word, Place is the Greek topos. And this has a literal meaning and a metaphorical meaning. And the metaphorical one is interesting because it is a state of mind. In other words, Satan will induce a state of mind in the people of the world that will compel them to seek the death of those who refuse to obey his dictates. So this topos, this mindset, is what we're talking about. And when we looked at our previous lecture, we saw that the, the architects of this kingdom that Satan wants to erect are all saying it's a battle for the mind. And Revelation tells us the whole world wandered with an O after the beast. In other words, had the mindset. So it's a battle for the mind. And this is a clash of ideologies, not a clash of physical armies that come out of the East. Christ will destroy those who have decided to accept the mark of the beast and to reject his morality for an earthly morality. And that is what will happen. Now we have to make sure. Revelation 16 verse 12, And the sixth angel poured out his vial upon the great river Euphrates, and the water thereof was dried up, that the way of the kings of the east might be prepared. This is why they say, the armies will come out of the east. But this is not a physical earthly army, because what's going to happen to all of them, according to the previous verses? Christ is going to destroy them all. All the mighty men, all the warriors, everybody, gone. And what is this Euphrates River? Well, the Euphrates used to feed Babylon. It was a literal city, and the Euphrates dried up, and Cyrus, 
Cyrus's army could march in and take Babylon. And Cyrus was a type of Jesus. The same will happen. The anti-typical Babylon, which is the mindset of all the religious leaders together, will come together and war against the mindset of those who accept the commandments of God and the faith of Jesus. And then the kings of the east will come and destroy those that have chosen against God's morality and have chosen their own morality. Let's make sure. Isaiah 41 verse 1 and 2. Let us come near together for judgment. Who raised up the righteous one from the east? Called him to his foot, gave the nations before him and made him rule over kings. He gave them as dust to his sword and as driven stubble to his bow. So it's referring to the one who comes from the east, the one who will bring judgment, the one who will crush the nations. Afterwards he brought me to the gate, even the gate that looketh towards the east. Ezekiel seeing the same thing happening in vision as Isaiah saw. And behold, the glory of the God of Israel came from the way of the east. And his voice was like a noise of many waters and the earth shined with his glory. So it is Christ who comes from the east with all his angels. This is the second coming that will destroy the wicked one with the brightness of his coming. Revelation describes the issue and says, And there were voices and thunders and lightnings occurred, and there was a great earthquake such as had not been since men were on the earth, so mighty and so great an earthquake. And the cities of the nation fell, Revelation 16, 19 to 21, because we've just seen and heard in the previous verses that when the Lord Jesus comes, all the cities will be laid waste. And every island fled away. I don't know exactly how that will happen. Maybe the continents will shift together. All the islands will be gone. That would create a mega earthquake. And mountains were not found. And great hail the size of a talent came down out of heaven on men. And men blasphemed God because of the plague of the hail. For the plague of it was exceedingly great. If you look at the wars of Israel in typology. When the Israel... Lights were faithful. They never had to fight. What happened? Christ fought on their behalf. And he used all of these weapons that we hear about here. He used the hail. He used all kinds of things like uh, stinging insects, wasps. He drove them out before them. They battled amongst themselves. They killed each other. The same will happen. There will be chaos on this planet when Christ returns. And Job reminds us of this arsenal of God and when he says, Have you entered the storehouses of the snow? Have you seen the storehouses of the hail, which I have kept for the time of trouble against the day of battle and war? Whose war is this? Is this a Russian army or a Chinese army that's coming along or an Iranian army or whatever army? Of course not. This is the coming of Christ from the east. So the living wicked die and the dead wicked remain dead a thousand years. So when we talk about the battle of Armageddon, it is an antitype of that great choice that Elijah gave. 
Choose thee this day whom you will serve. If you want to serve Baal, go ahead. But if you want to serve the Lord, then serve the Lord. Don't be on both sides of this issue. You can only make that choice. There are only two camps, not three. There are no neutrals in this war. You're either on the one side or the other. So this long-awaited millennium, I mean, people talk about it, panic, don't panic, <laughs> the end of the world, Y2K, I mean, people have been talking about this for eons, and it means absolutely nothing, because the Bible says there will be no millennium of life, it'll only be a millennium of death. So there's a first resurrection, there's a thousand years, and then there comes the second resurrection. Now, who's the author of life? Jesus. So who's the only one who can resurrect people? I am the resurrection and the life, says Jesus. Jesus said, I lay down my life and I will take it up again. Because he had life within himself. Satan is a created being. He can resurrect no one. So this resurrection, the second resurrection, is also from Christ. Because he's the only one who is immortal. Because the Bible says, who alone has immortality. We looked at those verses in the previous lecture. So Jesus resurrects them after the millennium. But what do the righteous do during the millennium? There must be something happening in heaven because they're alive. And Revelation 20 verse 6 tells us they shall be priests of God and of Christ and shall reign with him a thousand years. Now, who do you reign over? And in what capacity do they reign with him? And I saw thrones and they sat upon them and judgment was given unto them. Revelation 20 verse 4. But judgment had already been felled because the righteous were taken to heaven and the wicked were destroyed. And the Bible says all judgment has been given unto Christ. So what judgment was now given unto the saints? Obviously, it must be the judgment of verification. Do you not know that the saints will judge the world? Do you not know that they will judge angels? So in other words, when the saints come to heaven, God in his grace opens the books to them and says, verify for yourselves whether my judgment was fair. Because you might come to heaven, and I'm sure there will be many such cases, because I think Stephen would go to the Lord and say, <clears throat> I'm just a little question. What is that man, Paul, doing here? Don't you think he had that question in his mind? Huh? And Uriah, who was no fool, will probably say, and uh, excuse me, <laughs> what, is, what is David doing here? I would like to see what happened. Or maybe you will say, uh, where's Aunt Betty? 
She was the sweetest little lady that I ever met. Where is she? Why is she not here? And the Lord will give you the books and you say, that was Aunt Betty? And you will have every question answered in your mind. And you will have to be able to ask the Lord, but Lord, if this person had had an opportunity, surely they would have. And you will see how many opportunities every single one had. And what will be the result? You'll be able to even go back into the records of the war in heaven. It's going to take a while to see how the rebellion in heaven took place amongst the angels. It's going to be spectacular. But at the end of the process, after a thousand years, every saint will say, Even so, Lord God Almighty, true and righteous are thy judgments. You've been fair. We're accepted. And what's the point of a resurrection? Why not just leave it at that? Well, these people must be faced with the consequences of their actions. There have been people who have persecuted. There have been people who have been malicious. And there are people who were not so wicked, but nevertheless rejected salvation. And then also for the righteous, we want to know, is it really so that Aunt Betty even though, you know, she was a very sweet lady, and even though I see that your judgments are fair, but what if she were confronted with the absolute certainty, seeing you face to face? Wouldn't she repent in sackcloth and ashes? And then that she's resurrected, and you see that hatred in that face, that stagger one step back, and you say, that's Aunt Betty? Now, I don't want to be facetious, but in my own life, I had one family member, bless her dear soul. She's no longer with us, and I've prayed for her many, many times. And she was the sweetest, gentlest, kindest person in our whole family circle until I decided to choose the commandments of God and the faith of Jesus. That face, I will never forget it. I've never seen so much animosity, so much toxin come out of an individual out of, as out of that individual. So I can understand what we will go through. Seeing is believing. So during the millennium, the righteous are in heaven. The earth is desolate. Satan is bound by chains of circumstance. He's confined to this broken planet. There's the judgment of verification which takes place in heaven. And everybody at the end of the process will say, God, you were fair. That's biblical. Do you all agree? Okay. Now what happens after that? When the thousand years are expired, Satan will be loosed out of his prison and he shall go out to deceive the nations. Now, if all the nations were dead, and he's going to be loosed out of his prison, which were chains of circumstance, then obviously, if the nations are back, then where did they come from? They were resurrected. This is the second resurrection. So Christ resurrects the wicked in number like the sand of the sea. And you see the mighty antediluvians and the shrimp-like end time people 
And I, I wonder what Nimrod looked like in comparison to Napoleon. It must have been an awesome sight. And this is the resurrection of damnation. And then Zechariah tells us, And the Lord shall go forth and fight against those nations. Now every time the Lord destroys, then it is called a war in the Bible. So you had the first one, which was called Armageddon. Here's another one. So there's a judgment. But these people are rebellious. Do you think they're going to go down without a fight? Absolutely not. Because they have that spirit of rebellion. And the Lord shall go forth and fight against those nations as when he fought in the day of battle. So as it was in Armageddon, so it will be repeated. With a difference. At Armageddon, he didn't come down to this earth. Where did he stay? He stayed in heaven. And the angels took the others up and he did not come down to this earth because we met the Lord in the, in the air. And his feet shall stand in that day upon the Mount of Olives. So Christ comes down and he actually touches the earth. What happens when a righteous God touches an earth that's defiled by the consequences of sin? Which is before Jerusalem on the east and the Mount of Olives shall cleave in the midst thereof towards the east and towards the west and there shall be a very great, great valley and half of the mountain shall remove towards the north and half of it to the south. So there where Jerusalem was, but it is a wasteland Jerusalem because all the cities fell, a massive plain is cleansed by the touch of God. And Revelation tells us what happens next. And I, John, saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, not the old one, that's destroyed, coming down from God out of heaven, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. This is the one that Abraham saw. This is the one that his hope was upon, not upon the earthly one. So it comes down like a mega spaceship. Who built that city, by the way? God built it. Christ built it. Incredible. And when a thousand years are expired, Satan shall be loosed out of his prison, Revelation chapter 20, and shall go out to deceive the nations. So he gathers them. He says, ah, my troops are back, which are on the four quarters of the earth, and this is called Gog and Magog. Now we have to look into that, because there were kings of Gog that were against ancient Israel as well. So there are different typologies in the Old Testament. To gather them together for battle, and the number of whom is as the sand of the sea. And they went up on the breadth of the earth and compassed the camp of the saints about the beloved city. And now it gets a little bit confusing, because it says, Fire came down from God out of heaven and devoured them. And the devil that deceived them was cast into the lake of fire and brimstone where the beast and the false prophet are and shall be tormented day and night forever and ever. Oops, this sounds like a hell. And I saw the dead, small and great, stand before God and the books were opened and another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged out of those things which were written in the books according to the works. And the sea gave up the dead which were in it, and death and hell delivered up the dead which were in them, 
and they were judged every man according to his works. Fine. Why is it confusing? Because the order is reversed. They are destroyed before they're resurrected. Have you noticed that? Now, you have to take the structure of the book of Revelation into account. The book of Revelation is written like a chiasm. That's a certain structure with a certain, with a certain purpose. The first half of the book of Revelation is what we call the historic arm. It tells you the history from the early church to the climax of history, the great conflict between good and evil, which you find in Revelation 13, 14, up to 17. So that is the historic arm. And the events are sequential. The second half is the eschatological arm. What will happen after that? The coming of Christ after the millennium, all of these events, what happens in, in heaven? And because it's in the second arm, and the two chiasms have to accentuate what is the climax in the middle, the events in the second half are written in reverse. So if we want to put it right way around, then what happens? There's a resurrection, the dead are raised, they are raised, brought to the city for judgment, the books are opened, they see why they cannot be in heaven, they are excluded. Are they going to be cheered by that? Certainly not. They're going to be very angry. And the devil motivates them and says, let's fight for it. Let's take the city. And as they rebel to take the city, what happens? Fire comes down from heaven and consumes them. Now it appears as if this fire is forever and ever. But we have to now continue. And death and hell were cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death. So there's a definition. So what do they do? They died once. They now die the second death. And whosoever was not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. By definition, the second death. Job 21 verse 30 amplifies this that the wicked are reserved to the day of destruction. They shall be brought forth to the day of wrath. So they understand now why they cannot be in heaven. They see the consequences of their action and their choices. And everybody is satisfied that rebellion, true rebellion, is incurable. You can see it in their faces and in their action. And God destroys them a second time. And it's called the battle of Gog and Magog. Now Gog and Magog actually mean concealed. If you compare the religion of Jesus Christ with that of the devil, the one big contrasting fact is Jesus says, I have done nothing in secret. Nothing. And when he said that to the high priest, he got struck in the face for it because he said, you can ask anyone, I've done nothing in secret. And we have nothing to hide. If you want to preach the truth, then preach it. Don't do it in secret. Don't go knocking on little doors and saying, hoo hoo, I have a special message for you. No. Book a public hall. Preach the truth. If it's not truth, then it's not worth standing. And uh, no problem with that. Put it up. Let people say why it isn't truth if it isn't truth. 
But the devil does everything in secret. Everything is in darkness. Everything is in closed doors. And his little lodges don't have any windows that nobody can see what's going on inside. And it's a night religion. So this concealed attitude, this backstabbing mentality will be destroyed forever. And they went up on the breadth of the earth and compassed the camp of the saints about and the beloved city. So here they're trying to take the city. Fire comes down from heaven and devoured them. What does the word devour mean? Obliterate. Destroy. Get rid of. Now, Roman Catholicism and pagan religions have this doctrine of hell. And if we go into the works of Samuel Hopkins, we get an idea of the Catholic way of thinking when it comes to hell. The smoke of their torment shall ascend up forever in the sight of the blessed before their eyes. And this display of divine character and glory will be in favor of the redeemed and most entertaining and give the highest pleasure to those who love God. Should the eternal torment and fires be extinguished, it would be a great measure put an end to the happiness and glory of the blessed. It's a very warped idea of the character of God. I'm just thinking, if I were to be in heaven, and let's say my wife or one of my children or my grandchildren or anyone dear to me was not there, and I saw them roasting an eternity down there in heaven, would that create great pleasure? Certainly not. But this is not only a Catholic idea, because unfortunately, it comes all the way from Augustine already. But Calvin, who was a great fan of Augustine, took this doctrine and developed the same doctrine for Calvinism. And if you look at uh, the Calvinistic view of salvation, then you are predestined either to be saved or predestined to be lost. Because man is so fallen that he cannot make a choice, therefore God makes the choice for you. And if he chooses you to be predestined for hell, then it is to glorify the righteous because by the suffering, in contrast to the glory, the glory is made greater. And that's Calvinism. Now, high Calvinism goes even further. High Calvinism says, in order to establish this doctrine of predestination, high Calvinism says, therefore God created Adam to fall so that he could predestine some to be saved and some to be lost. Now what does that do to the character of God? It makes him the perpetrator of all evil. And all the consequences that we see are God's fault. And what is it that mankind constantly says? When things go wrong, when a disaster strikes, when a tsunami wipes out a city, who do they all complain against? God. I don't hear nobody complaining against the devil. It's always God who's at fault. So this is rather fascinating. Ezekiel 33 verse 11 says, As I live, says the Lord God, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that the wicked turn from his way and live. Turn, turn from your evil way, for why will you die, O house of Israel? So God is long-suffering, and he's, he's not 
one to be a torture monger. He took all the pain upon himself. Because when he died on that cross, he died with all the pain of all of humanity in totality. That's incredible. Only God could do that. Ezekiel 18, 32, I have no pleasure in the death of him that dies. Isaiah says, let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts and let him return unto the Lord and he will have mercy upon him and to our God and he will abundantly pardon. This is the character of God. It's in total contrast to this image that people have. I myself was an atheist most of my life. Why? Because of the doctrine of hell. Because my mother being Lutheran, at that stage was condemned by the church that I belonged to, the Catholic Church, to roast forever in hell because she was in the wrong religion. And uh, I took exception to that and chose not to believe the God, which is silly. I should have chosen not to believe the church and checked it for myself. The Catechism of the Catholic Church states that the teaching of the Church affirms the existence of hell and its eternity. And after death, the soul goes either to the hot place or it goes to the other hot place, which is purgatory, where you suffer for the sins that were forgiven, unless, of course, you're exonerated by the Pope. These are the exercises of Loyola, and uh, part of the spiritual formation. And this is his meditation on hell. First prelude is the composition. So you use all your senses when you imagine yourself into a situation. So you imagine the length, the breadth, and the depth of hell. And then you ask for the interior sense of the pain which the damned suffer, in order that through my faults I should forget the love of the eternal Lord, at least the fear of the pain may help me to come uh, into, not to come into sin. And then he says, and I must use my, the sight of my imagination, I must see the great fires and the souls of the bodies of fire. And then I must hear the wailing and the howling and the cry and the blasphemy against Christ and all his saints. And then I must smell the smell, the smoke, the sulfur, the dregs, and the putrid things. And then I must taste the bitter things like tears and sadness and worm of conscience. And then I must touch and say, Whoo, how the fires touch and burn the soul. Isn't it disgusting? What a view of hell, and what a view of the character of God. The character of God is destroyed by the theologians of this world. The Bible knows nothing of this monster God that they're talking about here who would make people suffer an eternity for maybe just a brief moment of failure. How many people die in their youth? Catholic answers. The doctrine of hell is so frightening that numerous heretical sects end up denying it. And then they mend the Universalists and the Seventh-day Adventists and the Jehovah's Witnesses and the Christian scientists and the religious scientists and the New Ages and the Mormons, and they list all of them. It's interesting. But do they make a comparison as to whether these doctrines of these organizations are biblical or not? 
Do they, for example, tell you that the, the Jehovah's Witnesses deny the divinity of Christ, which is absolutely crystal clear in the Bible, or what the New Ages believe, or what the Mormons believe, or what the Christian scientists believe? They themselves say, if you want to be a Protestant, you have to be a Seventh-day Adventist. This is what the Roman Catholic Church says, but they call it heresy. Here's another lecture, Cyril of Jerusalem. He says, we shall be raised all with bodies eternal, but not all with bodies alike. For if a man is righteous, he will receive a heavenly body that he may be able to worthily hold converse with the angels. But if a man is a sinner, he shall receive an eternal body fitted to endure the penalties of sin. So you've got to be strong so that you can suffer. That he may burn eternally in hell, nor ever be consumed. And righteously will God assign this portion to their company. We don't even have to read it all. This is the mindset of a warped ideology. And just because the Bible uses symbols of fire, the word hell is hades, which means grave. It doesn't even mean fire, it means grave. And the word hyena means fire. But is it a fire that burns forever and ever and ever to put people into pain? No, God is an everlasting fire. Isn't God a consuming fire? And didn't the, the angels walk amongst the fiery stones? And won't the redeemed stand on a sea of glass mingled with fire? And didn't the three worthies stand in the fiery furnace and were not consumed? Yes, God is a consuming fire. He's an eternal fire. But that which he consumes is gone eternally. The fire of God is not extinguished thereby. It's rather fascinating that the devil has managed to turn it around and say that the, the lost go to the fire. No, the redeemed go to the fire. The redeemed go to the fire of God's presence. And he hates God. So he turns it round and he blasphemes God with false doctrine. Matthew 10, 28, Fear not them which kill the body, but are not able to kill the soul. Rather fear him that is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. Hard death. And death and hell were cast into the lake of fire. That's a definition, the second death. And who's not found in the book of life is cast into the lake of fire, suffers the second death. And then the Bible gives us examples. Sodom and Gomorrah, condemned to ashes. And then it tells us, making them an example of those who should live ungodly. And Jude tells us, making them an example of those who shall suffer the vengeance of eternal fire. So are they still burning those cities? Obviously not. But the consequences are eternal. But the wicked shall perish and the enemies of the Lord shall be as the fat of lambs. They shall consume into smoke. They shall consume away. That's sort of final. That's pretty direct. Or the flames will devour them. That's pretty direct. Or they shall be as though they had not been a badiah. That's pretty direct. There's no... No two ways of interpreting that. That's final. That's your base text. And you shall trample the wicked and they shall be ashes under the soles of your feet. That's pretty direct. So these are the clear texts. 
So when it comes to a metaphorical text, then we have to look at type and anti-type. We must compare verse with verse, but it must always be in harmony with a clear text. Now let's have a look at some of the other uh, doctrines. For example, the Quran. How does that see hell? Surah 2 verse 81. Indeed, those who earn sins and become surrounded by their evil work will be dwellers of hell. They abide in it forever. As for those who believe and lead a righteous life, they will be dwellers of paradise. They abide in it forever. So there are also two groups in the Quran. But then Zura 4 verse 56 says, Indeed, those who disbelieve our verses, we will drive them into a fire, and every time their skins are roasted through, we will replace them with other skins so that they may taste the punishment. Indeed, Allah is ever exalted in might, in might and wise. Isn't that exactly the same, what the Catholic theologians said? It's exactly the same. We'll give them a strong body so that they can feel the burning. Yeah, we'll roast their skins off and we'll give them another skin so they can feel the pain again. Surah 18, verse 29. Say, the truth is from your Lord. Let him who will believe and let him who will reject. For the wrongdoers we have prepared a fire whose smoke and flames like the walls of a roof of a tent will ham them in. If they implore relief, they will be granted water like melted brass that will scale their faces. How dreadful a drink, how uncomfortable a couch to recline on. Surah 14, 49, And thou wilt see the sinners that day bound together in fetters, their garments of liquid pitch, their faces covered with fire. So you have all these vengeful deities... And you have to compare him with a God of righteousness and love and long-suffering who was prepared to die for the sins of the world. Because Psalms 37 says they shall consume away. Yes. God will not perpetuate sin for all eternity or else eternity would be like this planet. A painful misery. It is his choice that he will stop it. It's just like someone who's gone haywire, who has decided to become a menace and to assassinate little children, we're all God's children, in a high school and takes a, a rifle and starts killing one after the other. You have to make a choice, even if you are that child's parent. You have to say, I cannot permit this to go on forever, even though it is my child. I have to stop it even if it means taking him out. And this is God's choice. Fortunately, we don't have to make it. He will decide when rebellion is irreparable. Then he will act. Fire shall devour them. This is the second death. That's the biblical teachings. And these shall go away into everlasting punishment, but the righteous into everlasting life. So now there's a text that seems to contradict. So we have to look again. How do you reconcile a text like this with a clear text? Or the smoke of their torment ascendeth up forever and ever, and they have no rest day or night, who worship the beast and his image, who receive the mark and his name. Is that not a text that seems to determine the other. Psalms 92, when the wicked spring up as grass and when all the workers of iniquity do flourish, it is that they shall be destroyed forever. 
So again, you have to compare verse with verse. What does the context of forever and ever mean in Hebrew thinking? Or in Isaiah 40, 34, verse 8 to 10, it shall not be quenched night nor day. The smoke shall go up forever and ever. From generation to generation it shall lie waste. None shall pass through it forever and ever. This is in clear contradiction to all the clear texts. So you must be able to reconcile them. What does the Hebrew mindset of forever and ever mean? Jude chapter verse 7. And as Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities about them in like manner giving themselves over to fornication and going after strange flesh are set for an example for those suffering this fire. Suffering the vengeance of eternal fire. So in this mindset, is the fire eternal or the consequence eternal? Obviously, Sodom and Gomorrah is not here. Must be the consequence, Peter says, that there's an example of those who should live ungodly. So they will be destroyed forever and ever. Let me give you a parallelism. Jeremiah was proclaiming that Babylon would come and destroy Jerusalem. And he uses this symbology. But if you will not hearken unto me to hallow the Sabbath day and not to bear a burden, it's interesting that in the type, when Babylon and Jerusalem clashed, the Sabbath was an issue. At the end, it will also be an issue. And not to bear a burden, even entering in at the gates of Jerusalem on the Sabbath day, then will I kindle a fire in the gates thereof, and it shall devour the palaces of Jerusalem, and it shall not be quenched. Is that fire still burning? No. So how long did it burn? Until it had done its job, and no one could quench it. You could try. But if God had kindled that fire, it was going to burn until it had done its job. So if you go to Jeremiah 52, it tells us that uh, the army of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came under the captain of the God, and they burned the house of the Lord and the king's house and all the houses of Jerusalem and all the houses of the great men burned with fire. And he called this an unquenchable fire. And if you go to Chronicles... You read, and they burnt the house of God. They broke down the wall of Jerusalem. Why? To fulfill the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah. Until the land had enjoyed her Sabbaths, for as long as she lay desolate, she kept Sabbath to fulfill three scores and ten years. It's interesting that the millennium is a thousand years and comes at the end of the six. So is that a millennium of rest? Do we have a similar parallelism there? Malachi 4 verse 1 puts it beyond doubt. For behold, the day cometh that shall burn as an oven, and all the proud, yea, and all that do wickedly shall be stubble. And the day that cometh shall burn them up, says the Lord of hosts, and it shall leave them neither root nor branch. So they're destroyed. All the wicked are destroyed. That's why the Lord says, do not fear those who can kill the body. He can kill you in totality that you never exist again in this great fire 
Because here, the word hell is chiena. And chiena is this fire that comes from God and destroys the wicked. So if we look at this word, chiena, hell is the place of the future punishment called chiena, or chiena of fire. And this was originally the valley of Hinnom, south of Jerusalem, where the filth and dead animals were burnt. And of course, this fire kept burning because they kept adding filth. So it was a constant burning. But did the organisms that were burnt there suffer? No, they were dead. It burnt until they were consumed. And uh, if we look at the word Hades, or the Hebrew shoal, then that's the grave. So you cannot interchange these words as you please and destroy typologies. So how long will the wicked burn? Let's make sure. The wicked shall perish. They shall consume away. It will devour them. So it will be quick. They shall be as though they had never been. The Bible is absolutely clear. There will be a total destruction of the wicked. Now, how will that be for the righteous? Well, if they are loved ones of yours, and you see that they are being destroyed, it'll be sad. There will be tears, even after the millennium. I'm sure there will be tears, many tears. But the Bible says the Lord will wipe away all tears. And then with the peace and tranquility of heaven, over time you will forget. Not because you've been brainwashed, but because it will fade. You can remember it. It will never be blotted from your memory. Otherwise, sin might rise again one day. But the whole purpose of allowing man to suffer the consequences and to see the consequences of sin is to forever inject him with an inoculant against sin. People always say, why does God permit so much suffering? God is not fair. Why didn't God prevent it? God has given time for sin to reveal what sin is. And God has not promised to remove you from the consequences of sin. God has promised to give you the strength to bear it. Didn't he say in this world you will have tribulation? Or did he promise in this world, if you follow me, I will protect you from all tribulation? Did he protect his disciples? Or did they die by the sword? Were they thrown into boiling oil? Were they beheaded and stoned? Yes or no? Yes. God didn't remove the consequences of sin from humanity. But he promised to go through the waters with them. He promised that he would bear the same pain as we would have to bear. And instead of blaming God, blame the evil that caused it in the first place. Yes, we might lose a child. Yes, we might experience horrendous things. And it will forever inoculate us against this thing called sin. So that if sometime in the future someone gets up and says, I wonder whether the Lord is fair when he has in his law. I don't think he'd get further than that. 
Wouldn't we come down on him like a ton of bricks? And that's why the Bible says it will not raise its head a second time. Sin will be forever eradicated. And who's the greatest guarantor that it will never come again? The redeemed. They will be witnesses. And the only sign of sin will be the marks in his hands and in his sides and on his brow. And when we see the Son of God and we see the marks, we will not be brain dead and not remember, but the glory that surrounds us and the peace and the tranquility and the friends and the circumstances will make it fade eventually. You shall trample the wicked and they shall be ashes under your feet. So what happens to Satan? I will destroy thee, O covering cherub, therefore will bring forth a fire in the midst of thee, and it shall devour thee and bring thee to ashes upon the earth. I find this very interesting. So he's going to be destroyed. It's going to be ashes. I will bring forth a fire out of the midst of thee. All the others die how? Fire comes down from heaven and devours them. So in other words, they all get obliterated. Not Satan. The fire comes from inside out and devours him. It's also God's fire. Why the difference? Because in him, iniquity was found. Was he created to perform iniquity? No. He was created perfect in the image of God, but he was given freedom of choice. So by giving him freedom of choice, the risk was always there that he could choose against God. And he did. And that became iniquity. And this self-esteem idea permeated through the heavenly society and led to the war in heaven. So he will be destroyed inside out as an example of the eradication of internal iniquity forever and ever. And I heard a great voice out of heaven saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men, and he will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself shall be with them and be their God, and they shall see his face. You can see the character of God in its full glory that would have consumed a sinner with a brightness, and you will be able to stand with a glorified body in the presence of God, and see him face to face. That's an incredible, incredible promise. I long to see the face of God, the glory of his character, the purity of the God of heaven. And then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth were passed away. So obviously this world must be recreated. So the, the saints come out, of the holy city, which is preserved in the fire that comes from heaven, just like the worthies were preserved in the fiery furnace, and they walk over the ashes that destroyed sin and sinners. Not that God wants to destroy sinners. He wants to save them. But if they cling to their sin and refuse to give it up, they must be destroyed with it. And you walk over the ashes and you see this earth burnt and all the remnants of sin, ashes. 
And then I think God will say, let there be. And you will see this earth being recreated. Not even Adam saw that. And we will see that. And you know what's amazing to me? God says, he that overcomes, I will let him sit with me in my throne. What did the devil covet that cost him heaven? The throne of God. The throne of God. And God knew he couldn't trust him with the throne. He couldn't trust him with the throne, so he never got the throne. So what did it lead to in heaven? War. It led to war. And it's still the same today. People cover thrones and it leads to what? To war. It leads to war. But the redeemed will sit with him, not on his throne, in his throne. That's much more than sitting on the throne. You know, you can go and sit on the throne. Oops, here comes the boss. I better get off. But if you're sitting in the throne, that means you are partaker of the decision-making capacity of God himself. Why can he trust the redeemed with that which he denied the devil? Because they've been inoculated. They've been inoculated. So he creates a new heaven, and God himself transfers heaven to this earth. And what will it be like? Well, obviously the animals must be recreated. So the wolf shall dwell with the lamb. Aggression will be gone. The leopard shall lie down with the kid. There will be no killing. The calf and the young lying and the fatling together. A little child will lead them. No aggression. There are beautiful, beautiful stories of people even today who have special relationships. There's this one man in South Africa who has this special relationship with a whole pride of lions, fully grown lions. Just go and look at it one day. Click it on, on YouTube and say, Africa, man, pride of lions. And you'll see this man playing with the lions. And they roll over him and how they love him. It's amazing. So a little child will go amongst these big, ferocious animals because there will be no ferocity left in them. And the cow and the bear shall feed, their young ones shall lie down together, and the lion will become a vegetarian again. <laughs> and that's what we did in the first lecture, and we looked at the scientific evidence, and that's why the series starts with the book of Genesis, and it ends with the book of Revelation. Because Genesis is the fall and the destruction, and Revelation is the culmination of the victory of righteousness, of unrighteousness. And a sucking child shall play on the hole of the asp, and the weaned child shall put his hand on the cockroach's den. They shall not hurt nor destroy in all my holy mountain, for the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. I cannot wait to ride on these massive animals and to have an association with them as nobody even today can imagine. They shall not labor in vain, nor bring forth for trouble, for they are the seed of the blessed of the Lord, and their offspring is with them. I Behold, I create a new heaven and a new earth, and the former shall not be remembered nor come to mind. Not because you are brain dead, but because of the glory and the beauty and the fading of the pain 
over time. And then I'm so happy about these voices, verses. And they shall build houses and inhabit them, and they shall plant vineyards and eat the fruit of them. They shall not build and another inhabit. You will not be driven off your land ever, never. There will be no King Ahab who covets your land and no Jezebel who has you killed to get it. They shall not plant and another eat. For as the days of a tree are the days of my people and my elect shall long enjoy the work of their hands. That means forever. I was always a little bit irritated with this cloud attitude. You will sit on your cloud with your little harp going pling, pling, pling from morning till night. Now my wife will love that. She would love to sit on a cloud with a harp, but me, I'm useless with a harp. Give me a hammer. I want to build things. I want to plant things. So this is amazing. You not only get to build your own house, you also get a farm. Now this is the typology of Israel. The Israelites were supposed to have a piece of land in the country, and then there was a town or a city where they had refuge when there was trouble, or when they came together for gatherings, and there they had their own house. And it will be the same in the new earth. You will have a house in the city. Who built it? Christ himself. It will be absolutely according to your taste. But you know what? If someone gives me a house absolutely according to my taste, that's great and I'm very grateful, but I would like to have built it myself. And God understands that because he created us with a creative mind. <laughs> <clears throat> Can you imagine the mind that we will have? An unfallen mind that will never forget anything that it learns? Can you imagine a, a transformed body that can see the entire spectrum of light from that which nobody can perceive to the other spectrum? We will be able to see ultraviolet. We will be able to see x-ray. We will be able to see telescope. We will have magnificent eyesight such as you cannot remember and a capacity to grow in intellect and the Bible says they followed the lamb wheresoever he went where's the lamb go in a universe it goes on state visits from planet to planet you get to go with him you get to see the universe you get to see the planets and you get to see other created beings how do we know there are other created beings because the sons of God sang together when this earth was created. So there are other beings, and Job describes the other planetary beings coming for counsel. And when Satan was still in control of this planet, he arrogantly joined them and said, I come from walking to and fro upon the earth. And then he lost his position and fell like lightning from heaven when he crucified the Son of God. And the Son of God earned back this earth forever and ever and ever. And we will have tremendous capacity to do things. And uh, I'm going to grow an avocado tree, I'm telling you now. And you're welcome to come and eat with me, but you're not going to take my avocado tree away. <laughs> I've moved in my life at least close to 30 times. 
I've planted an avocado tree in every single house, and I've never, never to this day eaten one of my avocados. Never. And when I come to these places where I live, there's this beautiful tree full of avocados, and it's not mine, I can't take it, I'd be stealing. I'm going to grow one. You can come and eat when I've had the first one. Now, all right, you can, I'll even eat the second one, because they're going to be equally good. And it shall come to pass that from one new moon to another, and from one Sabbath to another, shall all flesh come to worship before me. So every Sabbath, everybody goes to the new Jerusalem. At what speed? How long does it take for an angel to get here? The speed of thought. Not the speed of light, the speed of thought. Did God use this and give it even to his disciples? What happened to Philip? He was running next to the chariot. He got onto the chariot. He explained to the eunuch what he was reading in Isaiah. And the next minute, what happened? The spirit, he was gone. He was in another place. I cannot wait for that. I'm a very impatient man. When I get into my car and I know I have to drive for five hours, now it drives me nuts. Why can't I just be there? It's going to be like that, so I don't need a car. I'll be much faster than a car, and I don't have to take a sandwich with me. Because in an instant I could be in another place, and it's going to be fantastic. So every Sabbath we come together in the city. You won't have to look for a place to stay. You have your own house, your own place in the city. And then once a month... Some people say this is one of the festivals. No, no, no. It just says it's a month because the month was determined by the moon and it will again be determined by the moon and not by a Jesuitical system as we have now. And once a month we will come together. What do we do once a month? Well, the Bible says that the tree of life bears its fruits. How often? Once a month. Twelve different fruits and the leaves are for the healing of the nations. I don't know how... It maintains your DNA in perfection. God could get by without the tree of life. He could give you life without it. He raised up Lazarus and he didn't give him a bite from the tree of life, did he? No. So why do we need the tree of life? It's a reminder of our dependence forever. And so when we get together to have this feast, 12 different varieties. I already said once, I had a tree like that on one of my farms where I grafted all kinds of fruits on it to create a tree of life. It was such fun. You could pick a peach and a plum and a this and a that from the same tree. So it's going to be something like that. So once a month there's a tree of life festival and every Sabbath there is a worship session. And that will be the new earth. And sin and suffering will be gone forever. I can live with a God like that. He's just. He's righteous. He's long-suffering. He doesn't want anyone to perish. And I believe the saints will all say, true and righteous are your judgments. And we can look into his face. I long for that day. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, the story of the battle between good and evil is reaching its culmination. 
the table is set for people to make a final choice between the mark of the beast and the seal of God. And this will be the final test that will lead to the great confrontation of Armageddon. And I pray, Lord, that many will be saved as a consequence of our witness and that your character may be vindicated before this earth because it lies trampled in the dust of theological enterprise. May we stand for a character such as was revealed by Jesus, who forced no one, but said, when I be lifted up, I will draw all men to me. May we also draw men to this character and this God that we serve, so that they too may see him face to face. In Jesus' name, amen. If this episode impacted you, please share it with others. Amazing Discoveries is a donor-supported ministry. To help us keep producing content like this, visit AmazingDiscoveries.org. And, as always, you can find the visual presentation of this episode on ADTV.watch.